Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the role of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to theconsumervc.com. Thank you, Samar Hernandez, for introducing me to today's guest, Rick Desai, one of the partners at Listen Ventures. Listed is a consumer venture capital fund that backs and builds the brands of tomorrow. Some of their investments include Calm, Factor, and Public Goods. Rick is also the founder of Dashfire, which invests in early stage entrepreneurs and provides near-term technical extension and long-term strategic guidance. We talk about opportunities he sees both in consumer products and consumer technology, how he thinks about growth versus profitability, and investing in founders in secondary markets. Without further ado, here's Rick. Rick, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. How, how are you doing? Doing well, man. Doing really well. Thanks again for joining me today. Yeah, it's, it's a good day when vaccines are out. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's a great day with the vaccine out. Absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about your attraction, I guess, starting you know back in the day. What was your attraction to finance and consumer? Yeah. I mean, I think I took a, a, a traditional, if you look at the start and the finish, it, it looks like I take a traditional path to venture. I was at an investment bank called Lehman Brothers, rest in peace, was there from 04 to 06, and then came to Chicago and, and worked in private equity. The, the leverage buyout, I think combined both Lehman and, and private equity were, were definitely culprits in, in the economic collapse of 2009. So I tried to not take any credit for that. But what I learned at those companies was one, you know, finance and capital and, and building blocks. But I also got to, to look at companies that were already pretty big, right? They'd already done something. They, they had you know, millions, if not billions of dollars of revenue or enterprise value. And everything we were trying to do was financial engineering or, or working capital assumption to, to squeeze out more value. And I was far more interested in, in how those businesses got started. How did you go from zero to something? And, and that's what was most compelling about venture in theory was you got businesses that are napkin ideas that haven't really done anything. They don't have a customer. They don't have a dollar revenue. They don't have a team. How do they go get that first customer, that first 10 customers? That, that was really the most fascinating element of, of 
venture versus finance. In the middle there, though, Mike was spent a year in India doing a microfinance fellowship and got to see what entrepreneurship was like on the ground floor, right? How it was used as a mindset, as a survival instinct. And then I ran a startup studio for, for a number of years in which we're working with those early stage entrepreneurs and how they built their version one technology and got their first customers. So you can connect the dots really easily, but there's a lot of up and downs in, in between there. No, totally. I appreciate that. And I totally agree that, you know, what I find fascinating, which is part of the reason why, why I started the show was that ideation stage from the entrepreneur. How do they take that idea and actually turn it into a business? And especially a venture backable business that where you have to see rapid, rapid growth and have some clear competitive advantages in order to see that. I think it's interesting. Yeah. And they have to do the hardest thing, which is overcoming that initial inertia of doing something, right? You know, form your LLC, make that first customer phone call, you know, find a manufacturer in China to make a product, find a designer to make your Shopify store, right? Like, it is so hard to do that first step. In traditional business, you have someone to do it for you, right? You take an entry-level job, there's someone to tell you what to do, but there's a playbook. Initially, there's no playbook. So I give any founder so much credit for actually making that first step to, to actually saying, you know, I'm going to try something that's really uncomfortable and really challenging. But once they do it, it becomes more of a habit than, than it becomes than, than difficulty. Totally, totally. And what was, I guess, your attraction to consumer-facing businesses as opposed to enterprise-facing businesses? Sure. Dashfire was before, listen, it was a startup studio. We were backing non-technical entrepreneurs, typically out of business school. This at a time when no one wanted to invest in the business school entrepreneur because they, they're not engineers. And so we love that. That was our arbitrage. And we said, hey, we'll work with, you know, what will an this business schooler will eventually go run a company one day. Let's just make it an early stage company. And we would build their version one technology in exchange for equity. And so we started building a lot of enterprise and consumer stuff. Now, now this isn't game changing technology, but it was enough to, for them to go make a sales pitch or to go acquire a customer and maybe transact some revenue. We, we met a business called uh, Artifact Uprising, which is a, a premium focus photo book business out of, out of Colorado that really taught me everything I knew at the time about brands. You know, they make photo books off your, your, your mobile, uh, of your app or uh, computer, but they never said that. They said that, you know, we're inspired by the disappearing beauty of the tangible and we exist to get off of your device and into your life. So they stood for something far greater than that product. And that's why I started appreciating what brand really meant. And I love the idea of connecting with the consumer emotionally. So, so I felt that consumer was more likely to win on brand than enterprise was. Now that's changed with Slack and Dropbox. They're definitely brands. But I just love the idea of how this company, Artifact Uprising, was connecting to consumers beyond their product. They were storytellers. They were engaging emotionally. And I just knew that I wanted to continue spending time in building those relationships, continue to invest in consumer brands like that. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I totally agree with you about the storytelling element, which is so critical to brand and how all of that just can be fascinating. And I appreciate you sharing that story. I'd love to hear a bit about the origin story of Listen. Yeah. So I fell in love with, with brand through that company, Artifact Uprising. Meanwhile, one of my investors in Dashfire is a guy, my now partner, Jeff Cantalupo, who spent his whole career at Leo Burnett, a, a very large advertising agency in Chicago. And he spent the bulk of his career helping big brands think about being innovative. And he recognized that, what about the innovative brands? And how are they thinking startups? How are they thinking about brands? So he started angel investing in 2010 in a lot of the Chicago brands, Chicago startups, and recognized that brand and marketing were often the missing seat at the table. It was an enterprise city. It was thinking about sales and product, right? But the brand and marketing was different. So he started investing his own capital and, and also started providing brand expertise, sitting at the table as a chief brand officer, chief marketing officer. And so when he invested in Dashfire, he and I started seeing eye to eye on a couple of things. One was, how can your dollars go far further? 
right? How can you write a check but do more? Jeff likes to say that the future of venture is less on check writers with a Rolodex and it's more domain experts who happen to write checks. And that's what he was doing. And we both decided that if we were going to do this together, we wanted to reimagine early stage venture. So we wanted to invest dollars together, but also provide a brand and marketing expertise. So roll up our sleeves and really help our companies through that capability. So the current version of Listen is is just the, the evolution of what he originally came up with in 2011, which is we're going to put in dollars and we're going to work really hard for you on your, on your brand and marketing. And it was formed out of the idea that brand is much stronger than product. Product and, and design and, and marketing can be co-opted by your competition. But if you have a relationship with your end consumer, that will never go away. Your consumers will stay loyal to you and your stakeholders, your employees and others will stay loyal to you because they're aligned on that brand. So we're constantly thinking about how we can invest, how we can back and build the future brands. Have you ever been just when you meet entrepreneurs that you might love the concept, you might love the product, but maybe you aren't sold on the brand and you might be willing to invest if there's possibly maybe a rebrand or maybe a slight change in the brand. Has that ever happened? Yeah, it happens quite often. You know, what we look for in a founder is their ability to inspire belief. Can they convince someone, right? Maybe they're when they're coming up with their idea, is it their partner, right? Hey, I'm going to quit my job and go run this company. Maybe it's their, their co-founder. Maybe it's the first customer or an investor. Can they inspire belief? And I think that comes from brand, right? Have they built their own brand or their own company brand, which people are, believe in the brand? So there's oftentimes that we see deals where the branding is not great. The design isn't wonderful. The logo is terrible. The name can be changed, but the brand, even if it's only internal facing, it's concrete. And the founder understands I'm really doing this not to make money or not to get more customers. I'm doing this because I want to elicit this emotion from the customer. This is our North Star. This is our purpose. And the wording that they may use may not be poetry, but you can sense that they're brand aware. So if we can find a brand aware founder, we're sort of agnostic to the branding. You can work on that, whether it be us or, you know, the red antlers of the world. I mean, there's free, there's plenty of freelancers who can help on the brand. I'm not worried about the branding. I'm more interested. Does the founder care about their brand? Got it. Because I'd imagine that can be at times maybe a delicate conversation since a founder might be so attached to what they're building, right? Yeah, we had the hardest part in our journey was to say, hey, our dollars come attached with this extra expertise. And then they have to believe that we were good at it right? That we could actually help them on it, right? So we were we were a founder in our own right, making that sales pitch that we could do it. Fortunately, fast forward to 2020, we have a track record that proves it. So it's less about telling people we can show, we don't have to tell, but upfront, absolutely, right? We, we have to tell them that they should think about repositioning or rebranding, and then we'd have to actually help them execute on it. So it was, it was a double whammy, right? Convince them that they should and then prove that we can. Totally, totally. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's almost like a trust there where part of the reason why you want to invest is because you trust in maybe the founder's origins or the authenticity and as well the product. But then they also trust in you that you guys actually know what you're talking about when it comes to brand and marketing and might have, you know, some good feedback in terms of maybe the direction of the company in that way. Yeah, I think there's two things there. One is we try to get to a place where the brand, and this is for any company, right? Where the brand is the ultimate governor of the business, the ultimate tiebreaker of the business. So if you're making a business decision or a personal decision or a product decision, you can actually look to your brand and say, does our brand want us to do this? Should our colors be red or should our colors be blue? Well, what does our personality of our brand say? Should we go add this shiny object to our product set? Well, what does our brand say? So the quicker we can get to the company operating based on their brand as a filter, the better. Um, so so that, that's the most important piece. And then second, we're, we're less worried about the true execution of the brand. We want to put the company in the best position to succeed. So that's talking to their customers, talking to their stakeholders, ensuring that we're building a brand that the customers and the stakeholders want. No, that makes a lot of sense. And that's very helpful. And I know, you know, when you joined Listen, when it came to growing brands online in the early 2010s, 
And, you know, you had these crazy arbitrage opportunities and growth by the DTC channel on Facebook and Google. But of course, now the landscape has changed. And so how do you think about on the growth marketing side and on the advertising side, building a compelling brand today? Yeah, I'll make the case that I think the arbitrage is still there, not as exploitable as it was in 2008 to 2000, probably 13, 14. But I loved what happened, right? I love that you could launch what was a direct to consumer brand, grow on Facebook and get some pretty big uh, revenue numbers quickly. And where I am not in love with was the venture capital response to that, which was, and we were complicit, I've been part of these deals in which we were subsidizing unprofitable growth because we could go get revenue really easily. We went and got revenue really easily. Even if our return on ad spend or customer acquisition costs, return ad spends decrease and customer acquisition costs increase, we kept doing it because we expected our customer to come back. And I think that's changed a lot as we look at you know how much competition, how big these platforms has become, is we have to look at it a little bit differently. We need to go to where a customer is. And that's not to say direct-to-consumer isn't a great channel. That's more of saying we need to be an omni-channel brand, not in commerce, but in where we meet our customers. So if our customer wants to hang out with us on social, so be it. If they want to hang out with us in a private group, so be it. If they want to hang out with us on D2C or in retail or in wholesale or on podcasts, wherever it may be, we need to be there for our our consumers. And so I still believe that Facebook specifically, that's what we're chatting about, is an amazing opportunity for people to scale, especially if you're playing in a, in a great market, right? If you're investing in the food space, everyone eats. So therefore, there's a massive amount of people that you could advertise to do. But that's not the only thing you need to be doing. You need to build a relationship with your customers. You need to build brand with your customers. You need to meet them across all different channels to hang out with them and have a great experience with them. I think that you alluded to it, but you know, since we had you know a bunch of investors at the early 2010s kind of throw money in and throw money at D2C brands when you did have these arbitrage opportunities and you kind of optimize for revenue and you're getting maybe these big revenue numbers, but your marketing ad spend or just numbers are nuts just through the roof. And of course, now it seems like investor sentiment overall, thinking generally about consumer brands has turned are is out of favor. And so I would think in terms of how you think about opportunities, maybe that actually is beneficial for you. But I would love to just kind of hear how you're kind of viewing the market in terms of like the competitive landscape on the investor side. Sure. Yeah. In 2019, we, we saw a lot of coastal funds say we're no longer investing in DSC. And we loved it. We loved it because when coastal investors leave, and I might say all coastal investors, but when a large fund, when you have a large fund that has hundreds of millions of dollars in assets, they become valuation agnostic. And so they were happy to write, make a consumer brand investment or direct to consumer investments and give them technology multiples. So there's a couple issues there. One is consumer brands, especially product ones, are not technology businesses. You know, for every product that you make, every incremental customer product you make, there's a cost associated with that, your cost of goods sold. So the multiples, there's a big mismatch. So we welcome the departure of, of some of those funds from D2C. And then COVID happened, where D2C became the only reliable channel. And we've seen a lot of those investors come back. So my takeaways is we need to one, not look at this as direct to consumer as a, as a category, it's a channel. Most brands are using multi-channels to distribute multi-channels to sell. And then we have to be mindful of valuation. You know, I think it's really dangerous for a founder to take a valuation that's overpriced. I think there's a lot of, you know, for all the success stories that we hear when it worked, there's many, many more dead bodies in, in the sense that the valuation was too aggressive. They, they couldn't raise follow-on capital. There was down rounds. And then worse is when a large fund does an early stage deal at a premium valuation, that large fund is less likely to care about that smaller company. They're less likely to be involved. They just have so much going on. So what I see the future of this space is having more, you know, what we do is 
concentrated approach to consumer investing. So three to four deals a year, hands-on approach. We're in the know with our companies. We're working with our companies. Less big checks up front and premium valuations because ultimately, if you invest at a technology multiple in a consumer business, you're ultimately going to exit at a retail valuation. So there will be multiple compressions. So we're very mindful of that and we caution our founders accordingly. They don't always listen as you know they don't have to. It's hard not to chase that valuation. Well, there's a number of great points that you said, but one that really stuck out was that when you have these large funds coming in, backing these brands and premium valuations, and then they don't follow on, they don't exercise their pro rata rights and the actual signal that sends and how painful and hard it is then for that company to further fundraise. And so I think that that's, that's really interesting. I would love to also know like your thoughts, obviously the DC channel and e-commerce has of course skyrocketed during COVID and there's been a huge tailwind there, but you've also seen, you know, incumbents now woken up to DTC and e-commerce where maybe before it was part of their strategy, but a retail was obviously their main strategy. And now they've poured lots of investment into DC. I was wondering how you think about the DC landscape right now, since the market has expanded, but there's also incumbents now are spending a lot more money. Has it become even more competitive, do you think, for that channel during COVID? So at first, the incumbents, every incumbent, because just the speed at which they move, pulled all their marketing spend away in March and April. And so a lot of D2C brands, a lot of consumer brands started taking advantage of the fact that CPMs on Facebook had never been lower, right? So they were able to go acquire, it was just a free-for-all, how many customers you could acquire, and you saw a lot of growth behind it. We've seen, obviously, that shift you know, not just because the big brands are back, but also because, you know, the election, a lot of money spent there, holiday, a lot of money spent there. And so it goes back to, you know, I view customer acquisition costs as the relationship between how well a customer knows the brand, right? The lower the cost, it means the customers know your brand better. And it means your brand is working harder for you. And so I think the emerging brands that have developed really great relationships with consumers, I think will prevail because the existing legacy and incumbent brands don't have that connection anymore. They no longer can stand for something great greater than their product because they make so many products because they have done things in the past that have taken advantage of consumers, whether it be pricing or the way they run their organizations. And so the opportunity for a consumer company to stand for something greater than their product has never been more important because it's what ultimately will differentiate them from the incumbents. I care about this brand, not because of the product. I care about this brand for what it stands for. And the legacy brands just can't do that. There's too much history, too much baggage, too much debt for them to ever get that emotional with a customer. No, that's a great point. Have you seen for upcoming brands since, um, especially maybe in like the food and beverage space, that you no longer are able to try products in the store? Are you seeing that for those types of brands or maybe even apparel brands that you don't really aren't able to actually try on the product that's been an issue in terms of customer acquisition? Well, I think it's a blessing and the curse of direct consumer of that channel is that their expectation now, especially in fashion, is that free shipping and free returns. So you now believe you can have an in-store experience at home and you you buy a lot of product, you test them and send them right back. That's really, really expensive to the consumer brand because they have to eat a lot of those costs. And, and my fear on in that space, particularly, it's been a race to the bottom, right? You, you started with a Bonobos that was saying, we've cut out the middleman. And then you said, hey, free shipping and free returns. And then Ninja-like customer service and then discounts and all these other perks, which ultimately erode your gross margins as a company, create an amazing customer experience, but the, but the businesses won't persist because you have no margin left. You've given it all to the consumer. And you know, as Amazon says, our competitor's margin is our opportunity. And, and, and that's what's happening. But I believe consumers, if you look at fashion, they still want to go in store. Shopping is not dying. The mall may be dying, but the experience of leaving your home and going and trying stuff is not going to go away. The guide shop model that Bonobos created, Warby's obviously done such a great job with it. That's not 
not going away. And I think that comes back in a post-COVID world, but it's how these companies manage the fixed expenses there, the liabilities of rent and other, the build-out costs. How they think about that is where I think there's going to be innovation. Food and Bev is, is truly fascinating because Food and Bev, because of delivery, right? How many billion dollar food brands are there? You've got restaurants, you've got all of the delivery companies with you know DoorDash and Caviar just going public, Grubhub, Uber Eats, it's extraordinary. Then you have Instacart, you have Amazon Fresh, you've got Whole Foods. And it's because people eat. We always have to eat. If, if you look at the discretionary spend for an American, it's housing, transportation, food. So we will get our food, whether it comes conveniently to our door or we go in store to buy it, we're going to continue doing that. So I believe trial, to answer your question specifically, will continue to happen in store or on-premise, but we're going to be more, we're increasingly going to be comfortable with, with trying products on the sample basis at home. No, that's really helpful. And I agree, especially on the fashion side, that it's now table stakes in terms of free returns and in some areas, even free shipping. So that makes a lot of sense. I'd love for you to walk through a little bit about your due diligence process when you're looking at companies. Yeah, we do a couple of things traditionally, right? We're very thoughtful about the numbers, you know, the market size, you know, the customer acquisition costs, the payback on that, you know, are they getting operating leverage? You know, we paying close attention to valuation and, you know, the entry multiples, the exit multiples. So standard due diligence in that part, I wouldn't say that we're, we're reinvented that other than we look at all of it from a brand brand lens, right? Does, does the brand help you create lower customer acquisition costs, quicker paybacks, and therefore give you marketing leverage? But where we spend most of our time, Mike, is on, on what's happening from a qualitative side. So we are always thinking about the future of cultural shifts and then what's the, the resulting consumer behavior for that. So I'll give you a quick example. Cultural shift that we've been spending time with over the last few years is, is the mind. We were, we were fortunate to have uh, be early investors in a brand called Calm, which which is, I think, now the, the leading mindfulness platform, both on meditation and sleep. And we started recognizing that people are going to invest much more time in their in, in their mind, and we called it our, our therapy thesis. We recognized that we were culturally addicted to our phones. We were 24-7. If you weren't writing an email at 11 o'clock, that means someone else would write the email at 11 o'clock, so you just have to keep going on. We're addicted to social media and how we look and feel. And that was what was happening culturally. But the behavior was really interesting. We started recognizing our obsession. We started recognizing our addiction. We started recognizing this tension that we had about this 24-7 on-demand world versus how it was making us feel. And yet there was nothing we could do about it. We just continued to do that. And so our view was that there will be an increase in therapy. People will start investing in their mind and their mental fitness in the same way that they invest in their in their vanity and their physical fitness. And so we called it a therapeutic thesis. Now, how does that apply to consumer brands? We had this wonderful listener named Julia who came up with this theory that, sure, we can invest in therapy, in mindfulness and therapy. But what happens if we look at the everyday? We look at brands that we have in our portfolio, like a Ketchco, which is a fishing brand, and say, what are brands that allow people to exercise a therapeutic behavior, playing music, arts and crafts, sports, communication, right? Books. And we now look at every consumer brand we look at, we say, is there a therapeutic element to that business? Does it trump novelty? So that's sort of the evolution of a thesis I listened in terms of we went, like we want to go invest in a therapy brand. And now the therapeutic layer is, is how we look at every deal that comes our way. No, that's really helpful. So it's almost like a very broad theme in looking at companies that might relate to therapy. That makes a lot of sense. And what, of course, as you say it, it all, in terms of how you think about cultural shifts, it sounds very obvious in terms of like, I'm always on my phone. We're always glued to our phones. But how do you measure that when you're thinking about cultural shifts in terms of finding data? Yeah, we do a couple of things. One, our, our team is, you know, there's seven of us and four of us have a deep creative background. So they worked in brand or creative or marketing. And when you work in those fields, all you do every day is monitor culture. 
because if you, if you are thinking about a new brand, you're talking to a bunch of customers. If you're thinking about a new design, you're surveying how people are interacting with the world. If you're thinking about marketing, you're thinking about how to message and how to connect. And so they are always sort of trend watching, if you will. I think that setup is unique because we don't have the traditional, we have a lot of investors with banking and private equity professionals, all on me. We have a lot of people who have not done any of that. They've just been paying attention. So we use them, we use our team to understand what we should be paying attention to. But we also are flexible enough to say that it shouldn't be prescriptive. We're not going to say that we should go invest in a therapy company immediately when a deal that we recently did, a business called Slumberkins, which on the surface is a, a stuffed animal business uh, that a lot of brand VCs passed on. They actually are a stuffed animal business that comes attached with an emotions so like grief or courage or, or loneliness. And the parent reads an affirmation book to the child. And so they were creating a therapeutic element. So it was a stuffed animal business that absolutely was in therapy. And, and so we're not looking for these deals, but when they come to us, we recognize that this fits us. So we have our team looking at it on the front end, thinking about how we should view the world. And then we support it quantitatively with you know the growth in the space, just Google search trends, right? How many people are looking for mental wellness, therapy, psychology, psychiatry? What are other tools that we can do to, to inform that our hunch is more than just clickbait, if you will? No, that's great. That's really, really helpful. And that's an interesting composition just in terms of your team. Because I've talked to a few investors that maybe most of their team just comes from a, not just, but comes from mostly a finance background. So that's an interesting, uh, that's really cool that they come from quite a variety of backgrounds. I'd love to know what your approach is to portfolio construction. I know you mentioned Calm right there. So you invest in you know consumer technology type businesses, but also, of course, consumer brands. And I'd love to know just how you think about if there is a structure or a specific percentage between the two since in terms of investment returns they can end up quite differently if they go well sure yeah venture math i believe suggests that you need to do lots and lots of deals especially at the early stage and that's because at the early stage it's super risky right you know these businesses don't need that much capital to get started but that's a lot a lot of companies to get started and that's majority of them won't win so portfolio theory suggests that uh, or power law suggests that in a 30 million dollar fund you should do 30 deals 500 startups would argue you have to do 500 startups and Y Combinator would say 75 a year. And that's right. That math is, is proven. But I don't necessarily know if that math will extend into the future because I think the modern 500 startups would probably look like 5,000 startups given the rate of innovation that we're facing. And so we look at it in a concentrated way. We're going to do two to four deals a year. And so how do you offset the risk of having such a concentrated portfolio at the earlier stage? One is you write bigger checks to get more ownership. So you know, rather than writing a $250,000 check and chasing an allocation in the deal and being one line item in the cap table, we're going to write a $1.5 million, a $3 million check upfront and try to take as much of the run as we can and be a significant equity holder of that business. And then as we think about you know, what happens with that, what, just because you have significant ownership in 12 companies doesn't mean they're all going to win because of, you know, early stage risk. Our view is twofold. One is we are giving our entire team to each of our companies. So when you take listen dollars, you get all of listen, you know, all of us go work at each company. And you can do that when you have two to three companies a year, you can't do that when you have seven to 10 companies. So we have forced ourselves to execute on the value add that everyone promises by only doing a small amount of companies and giving them what we can to improve their customer funnel, build their brand and, and, and help them on growth marketing. And then on diversification, you know, we've been able to raise capital because we, we can say that we're the only exclusive consumer fund between the coasts. But obviously, you and I both know that's really ambiguous and broad. So we look for companies that are that have a clear customer funnel. So that's obviously e-commerce product brands, but that's also consumer internet. 
As we think about how we allocate between the two, consumer internet, higher risk, but greater upside. Consumer products, lower risk, but not as much upside. So we factor that in and we think we'll do a healthy mix between the two, probably 60, 70% consumer product, 30, 40% consumer internet to balance the two. No, that's helpful. And I think it goes back to what you said about having a clear customer funnel for any opportunity you look at. And then thanks for explaining a bit as well. For folks that don't know about you know the power law and why some very early stage investors make a lot of deals that are very, very small check sizes. And of course, you know, as relate, well, well, it seems like across venture capital, we've been through this long phase of grow at all costs. And now we've shifted to a focus on profitability. And maybe that's, you know, the ultimate question of balancing growth versus profitability. But I'd love to know how you think about the shift from growth to profitability that's been happening over the past couple of years. Yeah, what's really fascinating is that in, in 2011 and 12, I think One Kings Lane and, and Fab.com had really meteoric ascents and then they crashed because of that concept. They were growing, growing, growing and not profitable at all. And everyone said, okay, the time is now, we're going to focus on profitability. And it never happened, right? The next five years, people were focused only on growth. We've got a lot of companies going public now that have incredible growth and not that much profitability. Partly given the Amazon mindset of why would we show profit, we should be reinvesting. But the reality is that growth at all costs, I think it works in software because the marginal cost of that incremental customer is nil, right? Netflix adds another user and or Zoom adds another user. It doesn't cost them anything. So I, I don't disagree with that mindset in software, assuming that you know you can get to great monetization or leverage. In consumer products, I, I struggle with a little bit more because you're always playing out your cost of goods sold. Like it's not happening anytime soon when your gross margins are going to go to 100%. It's going to be stuck, best case, 60%. So internally, we, we say that we want our cake and we want to eat it too. We want to grow and be profitable. And we think there's a way to do that. We think it's two ways. One is brand. If you have a great brand, it requires you to have less reliance on paid spend. Even better, if you have a great brand, it means you can spend more on paid spend because it'll be offset by your organic. So it'll allow you to scale faster. And that creates marketing leverage, meaning that as your revenue grows faster, your marketing doesn't grow as fast, therefore creating profit. And the second would be operating leverage. And that to me is uh, manage your fixed costs. When you take lots of venture dollars, you typically say, okay, we need to go and build a team to get ahead of future growth. And that scares me because you don't know that future growth is coming. I much prefer a company at the early stage to be bursting at the seams than to be having a lot of people sitting there underutilized. That's the worst thing you can do because you have to let go a lot of people when push comes to shove. So we, we love seeing brand-driven marketing leverage and we love to see really, really good operating leverage. It's not to say that we want to overwork or overrun our, our teams. No, we want to know what's the throughput we can get out of the team and then incrementally add heads accordingly versus building out the new offices and, and adding all the perks in the big teams before that growth has actually come. So I think a consumer product company, no difference than a traditional business that hasn't relied on venture capital, they use their P&L to manage their business, right? They say, can we afford to make this higher? How many more widgets do we need to sell to, to, to cover the cost of this higher. I think that same mindset happens in venture-backed businesses. You need to really understand how much how much more return you're going to get out of every investment you make. I think that's a great point. You know, as you say, for physical good type businesses, you're always going to have marginal costs, whereas in software type businesses, you aren't. But in software type businesses, probably your fixed costs to actually get it up and running are going to be far greater than a physical good type businesses. So I think it's balancing both of those things since they're quite different. That's a normalization event that I don't think has happened yet. I think that 
today with Shopify and Facebook, you and I could create an e-commerce business tomorrow, right? I could get the Shopify site running, you could run the marketing and we could get to, you know, we, we could drop ship from China, right? And we, we could go run a business and we could have a million dollars of revenue with very little invested capital. And meanwhile, valuations at early stage continue to increase. And my concern here is that because it's taken less to get started, there should be a normalization event. Let's say if you're in a consumer products business, you're getting the benefit of all of this infrastructure that's been built for us that you need to be a couple million dollars of revenue before you raise your early stage round. Not to say that the pre-seed round shouldn't exist. Absolutely. I think there's a big difference between venture capital and startup capital, especially as we think about founders who don't have access to traditional family capital or business schools or friends that are giving the money. How do you ensure that everyone gets access to startup capital? So um, I think startup capital and venture capital have been mixed way too much. And I think a lot of, especially in consumer, there's a need for more startup capital at the early stage. It doesn't need to be venture capital. It needs to be the money that allows you to get off the ground, get started and take some of those early stage risks, you know, to, to fund some of that R&D. And then if you know it's working, you can scale, go, go get the venture capital. But when venture capital comes down that early, it sort of prohibits the more realistic outcomes for the company. I think that's a great point. You know, I also haven't heard that terminology before in terms of startup capital versus venture capital. And I love that in terms of, you know, since it is so easy for a physical good type business to get off the ground, as you said, with your example of us starting a business tomorrow using Shopify and then doing Facebook ads and drop shipping, really, we could probably set that up in like an hour. But at the same time, when you're taking venture capital, you have to be kind of further along when it comes to revenue in order to seek and actually has to make sense. Whereas maybe in software, it makes sense that you might have to actually use venture capital dollars to go towards, you know, R&D, for example, and actually build the actual software itself. Totally. That's exactly right. And I think in software, you end up raising, then you start thinking about founder dilution, right? Um, because if, if you're creating the next great idea, and it's going to require $10 million to run it, how do you ensure that the founders are still incentivized? And so I think the concept that we look at is the founders are the biggest investors in their business, right? Like before they've taken capital, they own 100% of the company and they need to manage their cap table accordingly. What are the right decisions that they need to make? And what we often encourage founders to do is look at the same metrics that we're looking at, right? So uh, what's your cash burn? What's your customer acquisition cost? What's your payback period? And what you'll realize, especially in software, is that you can't rely, you want to spend all your dollars in engineering. You don't want to rely on marketing. And so inherently it requires that product to have some sort of viral component or network effect that when you get one, one customer, you actually get three. And that's why you're seeing some of the best enterprise businesses have had that, that network effect into that flywheel. And that's because they wanted their dollars to go on product, not in marketing. And I think that's a big difference between software tech businesses and consumer product. I think we can learn on the consumer brand side that we need to operate more like that because Facebook is so easy for us and we don't have many other costs. We just use it. But what happens if you rethought it and said, how can this product, how can this experience go encourage or attract another customer to it? And that's what I look forward to in terms of the ingenuity of the, the next batch of consumer founders. TikTok being a great example. How do you create network effect in consumer in the way that it's almost required in software? That's a great point about network effects. I totally agree. And TikTok is just fascinating on, on its own. So what's one thing you would change when it came to venture capital? I would say, I think it's, there's a respect element and I can only speak for us, right? And what we've seen. I would say that what we want to continue doing, Mike, is is, is re reminding ourselves that the founders are taking the risk. If the founder is the biggest investor in their own business, they have one investment, their business. Venture capital is a risk mitigation platform, right? How do you, how do you, get returned by, while managing risk. And so we do, in our case, we do 12 deals per fund. In some other venture funds, you do 30 deals per fund. You're, you're spreading out the risk. And so we need to remind ourselves that the founder has one shot at this. We've got 
in our case, 12 or in others, 500. So when we go in, we want to understand that they are taking the risk. They're putting their lives on the line. We're doing this 12, 13 times over. So I continue to remind ourselves that looking out for the founder and, and you know, still being responsible to our investors and to our team, but the founders have a lot more to risk than we do. And we are just one small chapter in their company story. And if we remember that, I think we can be better partners to them in perpetuity versus saying that, no, we're the reason for your success. Capital is a commodity. You can go on AngelList and raise capital or Kickstarter to raise capital. There's capital for most people. There's capital everywhere, not for everyone. And so investors, you know, I think sometimes get way too much of the credit when we are, you know, just one small part of it. Totally agree. Totally agree in terms of just how to actually think about risk. Because a lot of folks just, including myself, only think about, you know, the investor risk on the investor side. And sometimes maybe forget that that this is a founder trying to do the impossible and build an incredible, you know, massive business that can receive venture type returns. I mean, it's amazing what they do. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Professionally, it'd be uh, Yvon Chouinard. If I'm, I never get his last name right. The founder of Patagonia's book, My People Go Surfing. We, when we do a deal, we often bring our companies in, in a pre-COVID world, and we we have a brand workshop with them, trying to understand, you know, help them articulate the most meaningful expression of their ideas. And one of the exercises we do is we ask everyone what their favorite brands are, and without fail, Patagonia is on everyone's list. They've just done such a great job. And now it's tricky for me to say that as a venture capitalist because I know the VC vest has now been banned by Patagonia. They're no, they no longer make that product because we we're hurting their brand, which I understand. But what he's done is is built an authentic brand, and not say he doesn't say that he's built an authentic brand. It's just authentic the way they run their business. And the power of authenticity in that company is so real that people want to work there. People want to buy their products, want to support them because they know that whatever decision they make, it's coming from a ridiculously amazing, consistent place. And so I love how he's expressed the power of authenticity in, in, in how he's managed his entire business. There's something so genuine about what he's done. So I love when we meet founders who are like that. And you know, we aspire to run an organization similar to how, how he's built Patagonia. I love that. I mean, what I love about Patagonia is how super transparent they are. I remember, I think it was last year, there was an, an article about how one of their supply chains wasn't as sustainable as it could have been, one of their factories. And Patagonia just said, like, it's really hard to manage this, but, you know, we're going to have to improve and get better. And But I think as a consumer of Patagonia, you know it was sincere just because it's Patagonia and they kind of really just release also so much content about sustainability and the climate and as well where their clothes are actually made from in sustainable ways. So... Anyway, I just had thoughts of them. They're awesome. Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of brands that will use the environment as a as a reason to believe, right? Like, hey, we're going to, you know, we're using a great example is we are now using uh, recycled plastic bottles in our fashion. And, you know, Patagonia has been doing that since 1993. But what they do, I love, is they don't talk about it. When the customer wants to go deeper on the way they manufacture their products, the information is there on the website. They're not running around telling people that we use plastic bottles or recycle plastic bottles. It's table stakes for them. And I think the world is better when all of these things that we try to get credit for become table stakes. And that's what Patagonia has done just, just so wonderfully well. Absolutely. There's certainly a incumbent that I, I'd imagine if you're trying to be a competitor, there'd be really, really tough to crack. So what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? When I was in India, my, the founder of the NGO that I was working with gave me this quote that I think is attributed to Harry Truman, that you can achieve anything if you don't care about who gets the credit. And that, I struggle with that because 
you know, we're competing for talents, we're competing for deals, we're competing for limited partner capital. So you got to have an ego, you got to promote yourself. But I think the underlying message there is, is show, is, is show don't tell. And that if you believe that you're doing great work, of course, you, you can make people aware of that. But if you're constantly promoting yourself and telling people about it, it's going to lose, in Patagonia's point, it's not going to be authentic. It's going to come off from a place of misaligned incentives. And so it's one I struggle with. And that's why I think it's the best advice, because I want people to know that we're, we're doing a great job on behalf of our founders, our investors. But at the same time, I'm also really proud when one of our companies gets bought or one of our investors doubles down on our next fund, because it shows that they are backing us and they believe in us. So it's a really good mantra to live by, because you want to have a balance in terms of doing good for the right reasons and, and going to work for the right reasons versus for the ego and for Twitter and for Twitter love. That's a great piece of advice, I think. And I understand how it can be tough in venture because venture, you know, yes, it is obviously an asset class, but venture capital is also, I would imagine, very much a sales job as well in terms of you're always pitching to founders that are interested in that you want to back why in your case, listen should be an investor or to obviously LPs to invest in your fund. So I understand that it would be maybe a little bit more difficult to balance, but I, I absolutely agree with the sentiment that, you know, not to be, you know, showy or, or in your face per se. So what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? It's probably to build a business because you know you can't sleep at night thinking about the business and working on the business because pursuing this lifestyle is not glamorous. Like you know, no matter what Shark Tank or Silicon Valley tell us, you know, and, and that the engineer has become the new rock star, right? It, it, it's not. The vast majority of these businesses fail. The mental considerations are strong. It's just really, really hard. I'll just give an example of a, a founder, a guy named Mike, who runs a business called Factor, which just announced they they were acquired by HelloFresh. Really great win for him, and he put. His his whole entire life on the line for this business. I mean, you know, blood, sweat, tears, everything to make this business happen. And I, I like when founders can speak with him and when they hear how much he did to make this successful, it's not for everyone. I couldn't be a founder. Like I would never say that I would go run a company because I don't have that. I don't believe I have the skill set that a Mike has. It's not to say that I'm not have I don't have self confidence. I would embed in myself, but I recognize that what founders have is just something extraordinary, and it's not for everyone. I would say that the best way to learn about that, and I teach a class at Kellogg, in which we're cultivating Kellogg's a business school at Northwestern, in which we are cultivating new enterprises. And after we get through the class, and these they're running real businesses in my class, and when they get through the class, the vast majority of people will say, "Hey, this is not for me. You know, I don't like them." I don't like having a self-start. I don't like the, the risk associated with this. I need to go elsewhere. And so what I encourage people to do is go work at a startup. Go see what it's like to work at a startup. Go see what it's like for the founders. And then importantly, it'll help you cultivate a skill set that's going to be really important in, in your startup. So yeah, I, I think it's, you know, just be very thoughtful before you, you know, just jump into this game. It's, it's quite challenging. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I love that. Build a business because it keeps you up at night. And I love that advice as well about if you're thinking about, you know, starting a startup, maybe best to first maybe go work at a startup to understand what that lifestyle is truly like because it's a whirlwind. To say the least. And importantly, if you are in an early stage startup and you're an employee, you are very much an entrepreneur, right? Like the first X employees of a startup are entrepreneurs. It's not the two founders or three founders that are the entrepreneurs. If you're employee 50 at a startup, if you're employee 50 at DoorDash, like you're, you were very much an entrepreneur or Airbnb, like you went up and down and all around with those companies and you, you felt it. And so if you're only doing it for glory, go work at startup. You'll get just as much. Great. Great piece of advice. I have to, before you kick me off, I have to ask you a question, Mike. Okay. What are you listening to? 
What am I listening to? Yeah, what things are you listening to? Listening to just in terms of... Music, podcasts, what, what are things that you're keeping your ears busy these days? Oh, thanks, yeah. On the podcast side, honestly, my favorite podcast is Invest Like the Best. I think every episode, I feel like I learned something, to be completely honest with you. For listeners, go listen to Invest Like the Best. I don't know Patrick or, or any of their team, but I think that podcast is amazing. Uh, Music-wise, listening actually to a lot of like 90s hip-hop these days. Cool. Yeah, I've been listening to like a, lot, a bunch of like old outcast a bunch of like jay-z's first record reasonable doubt and like old nas i love it i don't know i'm actually more of like a rock guy normally but i don't know i've been really in like a 90s hip-hop kick how about you what are you listening to these days i've got two littles at home and so we've got winter season and christmas season holiday season we've got a lot of frozen two soundtrack going on <laughs> oh nice nice so embarrassingly that that's been capturing the most of our spotify playlist and then on the podcast side i'm a loyalist to how i built this i think what i appreciate about that is they don't often talk about where they are today. I love that they go to the beginning because I love that zero to something story. I think it's just, there's something so, so wonderful about hearing like the self doubts and the inertia and the, and the, like we almost died 10 times part of the story. So I love hearing to that part. I'm not less interested in how well it ended up. I'm more interested in, in, in that beginning story. Yeah, I love those types of episodes too. Just hearing about also like, even when you have a founder that just discovered maybe a feature of a product that just kind of like, like out of a whim, how it happened and really more of like the aha moments per se. I always think that stuff is fascinating. And yeah, how about this is also, also great. Excellent podcast as well. Thanks for letting me hijack your podcast right there. No, no, no. It's great. It's great. It's great. Thanks, Rick. Thanks. Well, hey, thanks again for coming on the show. This has been really fun. Awesome, man. Happy holidays. And there you have it. Rick, thanks again so much for coming on the show. I really appreciated the conversation. You can follow Rick on Twitter at Rick Desai. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks. Mm-hmm.